0: Hello and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host EJ Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a donor-led virtual tour of the grant-making process. Donors walk us through how they find potential organizations and ultimately decide how to fund them. Today we will have a virtual tour, but this will be one of our deepest conversations in virtual philanthropy's history. Right now we're battling two pandemics. One is a virus and the other is a disease. COVID-19 and racial injustice. Our person in philanthropy today is probably one of the best people to provide both a virtual tour of philanthropy, but also paint a virtual landscape of how we can seize this opportunity for systemic change. I'm honored to welcome Fred Brown, president of the Forbes Fund. Fred, welcome.
1: Thank you, it's great to be on the show. This is exciting to think about. This is such a fortuitous moment in history as you pointed out, the two
0: pandemics. say okay, before we get started, do you wanna just tell us about yourself a bit?
1: Uh, yes, my name is uh, Fred Brown. I said pretty much a kid from the neighborhood. Went to school, public school. Graduated. Went to college. Um, started off working as a in probation, or actually I started off in, as a school teacher, and working in detention. Moved to probation. From probation, I moved to doing some special projects with the mayor's office. Had a period where I buried 50 kids, over 50 kids from gang violence. And as I began to look at my career pathway, I realized I wanted to be part of systems change and not just dealing with the back end of the many of the issues I was confronted with. And so um, I went back to school. I got my master's degree at the University of Pittsburgh. Did a prevention and intervention program with the courts. I did a deferred disposition program where I mitigated 500 kids from entering the juvenile justice system. After that, I did some more work and moved into environmental justice work. Got trained in the Climate Justice Corps work in San Francisco, began to write policy work in DC, learned a lot about environmental justice. Then I decided to move to Charlotte, became a dean of students, taught at John C. Smith University, Worked with uh, Mecklenburg County Schools doing prevention and intervention work as well. Um, did some dropout prevention programs for community colleges uh, focused on black males. Came back to Pittsburgh after leaving Charlotte and worked on a, at that time it was a 135 year old institution called the Kingsley Association. Where I, um, our biggest achievement while I was there, we helped a community in Larmer in the city of Pittsburgh receive a hundred uh receive a 30 million dollar choice neighborhoods award um, that award allowed the community to reinvent itself as a green sustainable community um, from there i went to the Homewood children's village which was a spin-off of the harlem children's zone became the second president and ceo of that institution and began to really um pioneer um, how we expedite our work and through strategic collaborations, um, grew our program in two years, double budget size, triple staff size, and began to really look at strategic collaborations as a way forward to really uh, create synergy around social phenomenon. And as a result of that work, I was asked to apply for the position at the Forbes Funds and became
0: the Forbes Funds President and CEO. And just talk to us a bit about what the Forbes Funds does.
1: The Force Funds is a 37-year-old intermediary that was birthed out of the Pittsburgh Foundation, and its true impetus was to provide initial supports to nonprofits as its initial focus was dealing with budgetary issues, usually uh, addressed or encompassing when nonprofits had governmental grants or contracts, and those contracts were stalled at the state level would have, have had a direct effect on the nonprofits ability to operate And so the forms funds was created to serve as an intermediary to support that nonprofit sector um, during those stop gaps in a sense. Over the years we've evolved to look at more moving from a reactive framework to a proactive one and looked at and explored the role of innovation, strategic collaboration, back office supports, to really find ways to optimize the sector. In the last 29 months since I've arrived at the Forbes Funds, one of the first things I did was do a 100-day listening tour to really understand what I had inherited, how people perceived our institution, what our strengths, gifts, and talents were, what were some of our Achilles heels. I took that information and restructured our grant making. I froze our assets for a quarter to really get a grip on um, where we put money at. We did a geo-special grant-making map and looked at where we put the last $15 million at and really was trying to understand um, what was the direct correlation between where our resources went and what changed. And so 29 months ago, when we made this pivot, in the first quarter that we operated our new model, we increased our grant-making by 400%. We reduced our loss by about $3,000 per grant by rolling strategic partnerships into a longitudinal framework and use our resources as a catalytic framework to really look at a stronger back office supports. How do you look at real strategic plans that include the board, board members from multiple institutions? How do you look at staff sharing where applicable Um, How do you look at shuttering, mergers, acquisitions, all of the like in a way to really explore how do we safeguard the continuity of a very important sector, the nonprofit sector, which we know in the U.S. usually spends around $200 billion a year. Um, And so when you start thinking about what that means both um, to big nonprofits and to small and the ecosystem, you you get to get a sense of how important some of the smaller nonprofits are, and I use a term all the time that to me there's the bricks in the nonprofit world, the institutions everybody knows by name, but then there's the the mortar that holds the wall together, the ones that obscure institutions people don't know anything about, and if we lose those, the stability of the bricks uh, makes the wall crumble, and so. There has to be a reckoning that that kind of activity and correspondence is critical to ensuring the balance between the nonprofit's role and the entities within the ecosystem of the nonprofit world and how they mitigate risk and in a long-term way within the human framework of many cities around the U.S. and around the world.
0: Thinking about when you mentioned environmental justice, it's coming at a time when people are seeking just justice overall, racial justice, social justice, and also dealing with a pandemic where their lives are at risk. How do you keep the conversation going in areas where people may not be focused on environmental justice, which of course the environment is not stopping for any of this at the moment?
1: EJ, that is such an important, looming question that I bring up every time I have a chance to speak publicly, you know, I have, there's three epic that I think that are going to occur in the U S over the next 30 years In the next nine and a half, we have climate change in 2030 and 2040. We have the minority becomes a majority in the U S as far as population. And then in 2050, we have 70% of the world's population moving to the urban corridor. And so there is a constant reminder that's needed to really create a framework and process for us to mitigate risks. looking at our carbon footprint, looking at how we build, how we use energy, how we burn fossil fuels, how we create alternative energy sources. And for me, what I found to be most challenging is that these conversations are taking place every day in many walks of life, but when you speak about these issues in black and brown communities, many people are, are oblivious to this being a problem or concern. In many ways, you can't see dirty air. You can't see PM10 and PM2.5 air particulate matter. You can't see um, lead in the soil, lead in the paint, and lead in the water. Um, you can't see um, these carcinogens. And so in, in communities where you see bullets, hunger, and poverty, Unemployment; those are visible signs of an eroding ecosystem for humanity. But these other environmental factors are elusive. They're invisible in many ways. You know, there's places where you can clearly see them. You know, when you go down to the original birthplace of the environmental justice area, you can see how these sewage plants, how these petrochemical institutions polluted these communities. But when people have to look at what's in the balance, whether or not I can pay the rent or take the job, put my kid through school, uh, feed my family, we're always making choices around surviving. And that choice has a consequence. That consequence is you can choose to live today, but do you destroy tomorrow? And if you're totally unaware of what tomorrow is because you're so busy living in today, and when tomorrow comes, it's just like a, it's just a slap in the face in a way that you haven't anticipated. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we've done at the Forbes Funds when we made this shift was we restructured all of our grant making in two specific areas. Um, our two focus areas are human services and community development. But within that genre, what we've done is we've aligned all of our grant making with the social determinants of health. And so when you look at education, community context, um, health and well-being, health healthcare, the, environment, the built environment, and you start looking at this notion of economic stability as this framework or this, uh, this paradigm that we exist in, uh, we begin to track and make grants in alignment with those areas so that we can track, one, where we put our resources at against the non-social determinant, and two, what has its influence been on that particular area? And three, what is the cumulative impact of our work when you connect it? And so the environmental justice work takes on a different form when you take it. And for what we've done, when you take the social determinants of health and you reverse engineer those against the UNSDGs, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and you look at those 17 indicators, it's very easy, at least to to impose those five social determinants of health within that 17 uh, indicator framework and once you do that there's almost a what we call a local global application where you can show locally how people's efforts and resources and energy are addressing a social determinant of health and then at the same time when you pull back from that and look at how it affects the UN SDGs you start to give everyday people a sense of the importance of their decision making, how critical doing X is, how important doing Y was. And now you begin to, um, I call it, increase their green IQ around, you know, how the world is evolving, how many species are dying a day, um, you know, how much natural water is available. When we frack um, how we're polluting the water table, and that's not fixable. You can't go down there and just clean that in, in a way that one might think. And so environmental justice becomes a very critical linchpin in humanity's ability to, to live on and for us to leave a place for our children and their children's children. And so the role of philanthropy is critical in the sense that how are we pricking the consciousness of people to think through and innovate and articulate different ways of being and understanding. So this notion around environmental justice is is well served. And I'll give you an example. Three weeks ago, I was working with a professor at the university of North Carolina, uh, Kofi Boone. I had reached out to me and a couple other colleagues who were environmentalists or have a history of being in the environmental justice movement. And um, we were on a show basically talking about black landscape architects working collaboratively with architects and what is the marriage between the two. And we um, had a thousand people from around the world on our four person panel, and it was supported by Land 8. And uh, once we went into breakout sessions, we crashed Land 8's website. And there was a thousand people on the call representing 50 countries from around the world And there was such a vibrant energy around what I would call uh, iterative ideas um, around problem solving. We used the framework of environmental justice as the nexus to really start talking about why collective genius is important. Einstein said you cannot solve a problem with the same energy that created it. And yet, in many ways, we function in a way that certain people's minds or more important than others. Google did an analysis years ago around homogeneous teams versus cross-functional teams to see how they perform. And that cross-functional teams outperform the homogenous teams. To me, that's symbolic of how we should see the world. The world should be comprised of many different people's ways of thinking and being. It allows us to extrapolate from that collective mindset a way of seeing problem solving from multiple lens that you and I can only see from our own lived experience but when you multiply that its ability to transform our understanding of a problem and its solution grows exponentially and so we are as an institution as an intermediary we are seeking to do that work and for more clarification we are a intermediary funder which means we raise money from the bigger foundations to provide capacity-building support and resources to nonprofits. And so in many ways, foundations give large amounts of resources to institutions that they believe in their work, but some of those institutions need capacity-building support um, to really optimize the ability to execute that work. And so we work with institutions that range from $50,000 a year is a budget to a hundred million. It's also a wide range of institutions that we work with and their needs are varied.
0: I was one of those 1,000 that actually uh, helped crash that site for you. <laughs> and I found it to be really, really great. Uh, Thank webinar. you, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, no, I, that was good. I
0: found it extremely uh, informative and and moving. And you started talking about something around this bubble that people sort of a, sort of a bubble of survival that people are in. Where they're really focused on the now they're focused on just getting through today and how that permeates what's happening around environmental justice around so many other things. How do we sort of adjust that towards the sort of what's happening in twenty twenty because we have people now coming and saying, "How do we help you for some reason twenty twenty is a year that people realize that racism is an issue, and to not put that in any sort of glib way, people are asking how do we what what are you feeling?" What can we do and i feel like as we discussed before people already know how they feel they've had this lived experience for several decades the idea of talking about how they feel and what they want is really tough and how do you propose that we move from this listening sessions that we're having to action sessions
1: well that's a great question EJ. i think that the challenge that we have is that for many black and brown communities we've been trained up in a civil rights movement and a Jim Crow era and out of slavery. And so you're talking about 246 years of slavery, 135 years of institutional racism, and 55 years of alleged freedom. And for people of color, when dominant culture pedagogy says, in this ironic 2020, like now their vision is perfect um they can see the problem they couldn't see for the last 450 years it's it's difficult for people of color to grasp that because you know i wrote an article a few weeks ago titled when you can't walk away and it basically encompasses that for the last 36 years i've been doing environmental justice work activist work um and i've had a plethora of white people walk with me and get on board and, and want to get down and and none of them are standing with me today. Not one. And so I hearken back to when you can just participate and walk away and then you can step back into the fold. But the people who can never walk away, the toll that is taken on them emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually, it's not easily overcome. And so I think you asked a very pointed question, which is, you know, what can we do now? As I've said to people, those people who want to help, that have resources, that have talents to offer, I think the best way to help is to say, here's a trusted source. I believe in their work. Here's resources. Here's me as a resource. Here's my network. Like, whatever you need from me, I see and understand the problem. It's centuries old. I am here for you, and I'm not going anywhere. What we don't need is a group of people or a system saying, I understand the problem. We got it. We got you. We You're good. We understand. We see it now. We got you. Because that's what we've been getting is, you know, when people do get it, they're like, we got it. We got you covered. Don't worry about it. No, you don't have us covered. Number one, you didn't invite us into the conversation to talk about what is being covered, right? And two, you're having a theoretical experience of of my life, my experience. And what's needed is a different shift of framework that really talks about, you know, the neurological emotional peptides that are need, needed to replace your old learning with new learning, Right. Because there is a certain level of experiential framework that's needed to move you from theoretically understanding my problem to actually having my experience and living through it. And what I think is important in this moment is to not undervalue the people of color's resolve and to not underestimate what's needed with regards to providing them with the resources that that person has or institution has to solve problems based upon their context. And if you would like to participate, you are participating as a partner with their vision, not to co-opt their vision. And I think there's a large amount of distrust in the world, and particularly in the US around when we work with other people how shortly after they come on board, they might take over the direction of the meeting, the project, and that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a, there's a strong level of resentment and uh, trepidation around what's next, right? And so, for me, I think if people want to help um, identify strong organizations, people, institutions, you can resource and get them what they need to operate, to build up their team, to address an issue, and then also make it more than money. Like, what else can you give to that particular issue when requested that you can give earnestly? Like, there's not going to be a second thought in your mind about doing it. And, you know, that's one of the things that we've done at the Forbes Funds is that we've, we really try to get people to understand that our resources meant to be catalytic But the thing that's sustainable is our thought partnership, our co-creation ability, utilizing our platform, getting access to our network. And so we spend, you know, before I took over, we spent 2.1 contacts before we made a grant. Now we spend 8.5 on average. During this pandemic, we've hosted 450 Zoom calls with over 9,000 contacts. We've facilitated 40 two-hour community sessions based upon some work we're doing with Nora Bates and out of Sweden, out of the International Basement Institution. Um, this focused on warm data labs and the second generation that I work called People Need People. And we really, when Nora and I talked, we talked about how did we create in a virtual reality a space for healing and a space to deal with physical distancing Because we saw early on that the pandemic was going to stress human engagement in a way that philanthropy and the nonprofit sector lives and breathes by. Because our work is similarly focused on human engagement. And now that's being removed. And if you don't already have relationships with people, building one virtually is difficult. It's not impossible, but it's
0: difficult. So before we get to the virtual tour, which I'm really, really excited to do, I think we've already done a lot of it thus far. Here's your chance for a shameless plug.
1: Something I'm working on right now with a group of people that I think is important. It's called the Black COVID-19 Equity Coalition. And it's a group of doctors, researchers, epidemiologists, uh, another funder, and myself, who's pulled together a group of black and brown experts to really help us dig into the dis- disproportionate impact of COVID on black and brown communities. And it's not resource. We've been doing this pro bono for four months. Uh, we've created a six-city coalition. Uh, we've made some inroads talking to the governor's office. We've had some stumbling blocks dealing with local politics because What we're seeking to do is optimize the expertise of uh, local black and brown experts in a way that speaks saliently to the needs of black and brown communities. And so we've created this notion around optimizing the federal qualified health centers as a hub-and-spoke model and to wrap around nonprofits in that ecosystem so that as we anticipate the expansion of viral pathways, we can explore how we can mitigate that risk and once addressed it, isolate and quarantine family members and such, but but then provide supportive services around those families so that that person is not worried twice about healing and taking care of their kids if they're a single parent. In some of the communities we work in, 76% of the households are headed by a single woman with children. And so if a mom gets sick, her whole ecosystem breaks down. And so this is where nonprofits play a critical role in piecing together a virtual family framework that really supports the longitudinal capacity of a mother to break through poverty and move into a sustainable, livable wage job. And so that's one of the biggest projects I'm excited about. Um, It's unfunded. Um, and it's this dynamic. We've learned so much from across some application of experts, docs, epidemiologists, and researchers. And it was strange, EJ, because one of the most powerful things said in the first couple of meetings, where a number of people said they never knew we existed in Pittsburgh. And the second thing they said was, this has been a very exciting experience to work with this level of content expertise representing people of color, and the divergent thoughts and ideas that are emerging from this experience have been transformative. Those are the things I'm talking about that we need to resource and support because it ultimately puts us in a position where we coalesce around problem solving from a multitude of perspectives that really allows us to galvanize the sector to respond in such a way that we eradicate problems, as opposed
0: to just what I call put band-aids on gay wounds. And unsurprisingly, your shameless plug is not shameless at all. It's actually quite worthy. <laughs> and now we move to the virtual tour, and I'm actually putting double duty on you, because I'm not asking you to just walk us through the virtual tour for someone looking to get funding through Forbes Fund, but also, in general, how people who are working on issues of people of color should be approaching philanthropy.
1: When you think about the virtual pathway of coming to a Forge Funds or other institutions, it's always predicated on building relationships. It's predicated on this notion that, you know, one of the things that I take pride in, and it kills me, is I try to respond to everybody's email and meet with anybody who wants to meet with me. I think it's important that people like us offer spaces for people that look like us to, in this case, come downtown to our offices, walk into our facilities, get to know our staff and other people's staff, and also for us to turn them on to other foundations as worthy patrons. And so we spend a lot of time um, capacity building smaller institutions and supporting other Philanthropists that are doing what they One of our key partners is the Pittsburgh Foundation's work of Michelle McMurray, which is the small and mighty nonprofits that she supported. And so we try to identify in a coordinated way how a tour or a process of gaining resources from us should look. And so for us, we have five core components, three are historical. Um, we function and operate the Greater Pittsburgh Nonprofit Partnership, which is a group of nonprofits and we average about 450 members in that group. It basically serves as our front door. Then we have our Executive and Residence Program, our EIR Program, which allows a nonprofit to receive a coach from us to really look at their organizational infrastructure, do assessments and such. Every institution that seeks to gain resources from us fills out a assessment tool that helps us discern what your core needs are, what your institutional framework and focus is, and what kind of capacity, building support can we provide. The third phase of our work is called our management assistance grants. And at this level, we provide our resources for a, a, a consultant to basically help address You know, our our top three areas are uh, strategic alignment, strategic collaborations, financial management, and back office support. And so we've expanded that work in 2019. The Forbes Funds Board awarded us the opportunity to give grants directly to what we call emerging organizations. And so we have an audacious goal of interfacing with 50 community institutions over the next five years. And the theory of change is in this model called the Catalytic Community Cohort, or C3 effort, in which a grantee comes in and goes through the other steps, if applicable, and sometimes those steps are interchangeable. But to become a C3 recipient, you have to be identified as an emerging nonprofit with a $4 million or less budget, and we match you with a $50 million or more institution that works in the same atmosphere, the same ecosystem. So education, education, so to speak. And we asked that CEO to mentor you so that you can figure out how to navigate Pittsburgh in a way that uniquely positions you to be more successful. And this is over the course of the year. That same emerging organization is asked to identify several partners that would help them address a particular problem. And then they we coach them all through this process and co-create to help them kind of figure out where are their assets, what are they leaving on on the table, how can they optimize those things. The um, fifth thing that we've created and we just launched this two weeks ago is called the Forbes Funds University. And what we've noticed is that there is a dichotomy within the nonprofit sector. There is a group of highly educated. CEOs and EDs. There's a group of very dedicated, resilient uh, CEOs and EDs. And one of the stagnant aspects of the nonprofit world of Pittsburgh is that there's not a lot of movement within the nonprofit sector leadership. And so one of the things we thought that would be catalytic was if we can increase the professional acumen of the sector, we can give people who have been Committed patrons to her work, the academic credibility that allows them to move around in the sector and use their lived experience as a leverage point to really create new opportunities for themselves. And so we just started the Forest Funds University a few weeks ago in partnership with Community College of Allegheny County. We're in current negotiations with the University of Pittsburgh. We're talking with the Create Lab at CMU. Uh, We're talking with Chatham University about doing some joint activity together. So we're we're talking with a number of universities that really can do one of three things we want this project to offer. One, we want to give people college credits. Two, we want to get them CEUs. And three, we want to get them certifications. And So anytime they touch us, we want them to walk away with something they can add to their resume that also increases the organization's proficiency. And so, you know, that's, you know, our newest addition. And we're working on a sixth project to add to our core competencies, which is really around this notion of optimizing the role of the citizen through a democratic lens to really create systemic change. That project is being its final stages of to be rolled out. And I would love to come back at a later date let you know how that's working out.
0: That sounds great. I'm thinking about, what's happening in the black community, the first three words out of people's mouths are Black Lives Matter, which is more of a movement than a non nonprofit traditionally. And I know that there's always been some issues around funding movements, but how do people who are leading either these movements or even leading sub-movements, leading groups that are formed out of sort of local versions of Black Lives Matter or just local versions of things that are happening in their communities that focus on their community, these are people who are not used to sort of looking for philanthropy to support them. And if they are, they're looking at very local philanthropy, fundraising at a very micro level. How do we introduce these people, or how do these people introduce themselves to philanthropy rather? What are the first steps they need to be looking at and doing?
1: I think it's twofold. I think one, philanthropy has to be looking for them, and two, those institutions have to really begin to restructure their engagement process. And there's there's a divide, right? There's a how philanthropy functions, there's how activists work. And those two things are usually in alignment. You know, one is trying to agitate and bring attention to a problem. The other one is more of a smooth sailing ship with a trajectory looking at resource distribution, targeted objectives, and it's really trying to ensure the integrity of invested dollars to solve some social phenomena. Whereas Black Lives Matter is saying, hey, this is not working. We need radical change. And so I think one of the things that's important for philanthropists and for activists to realize is how do you pitch a rapid prototyping? How do you create spaces for courageous conversations and then how did you articulate that in a basic way to a funder that resonates with your understanding of how they make grants and i think you know that's what we spend a lot of time really helping activists and and small nonprofits understand okay this is how you you might want to couch this particular situation on the flip side Philanthropy could benefit from being more iterative and agile. Uh, We can be more creative about how we give resources. I think one of the greatest things philanthropy can do is to provide unrestricted resources to these institutions. So much of these institutions, dancing as they will refer to it, is around a project with the foundations are interested in supporting, which we know changes from year to year based upon what's critical in a particular community, city, and and in a country. Whereas these institutions have to always look at how they can maintain funding uh, around projects that the foundations might have saw as important two years ago, and now this year they're moving in a different direction. Well, that's, that's dangerous to the institution to put 24 months into building something that the foundations liked or supported, and now it doesn't have the same steam or bandwidth and so there is a need for us to look at okay how do we iterate how do we maintain supporting the important work of this institution how do we give space to this institution a pivot how are we on board with that pivot and i'll give you an example of something we did so when we started giving out our c3 grants pre-covid each or each community and we're in 10 communities and we have a million dollars committed to those communities How do we help you think through your idea? And pre-COVID, they came up with great ideas, which is why we supported that. Well, when COVID hit, we were like, okay, what's, what's different? What's changed? And so I'm actually coaching one of the institutions that received grants, a grant from us. And I went back to the institution. I said, well, how are you guys thinking differently about what your work was primarily focused on and what it needs to look like now with COVID? And so we did a a visioning process, my team did a visioning process. They had a great idea, we were were 100% behind that. But when COVID hit, that idea became secondary and what became more prevalent was a need to make sure kids in this particular community can graduate on time and be college ready. And so we partnered with uh, CCAC, Community College of Allegheny County and Penn State University and a local institution. And that institution served as the hub to really create a framework around how do we optimize these other institutions to ensure that these kids graduate on time. And so Keith Murphy, who runs this other institution, we began to brainstorm and say, you know, Keith, what if we did this? What if we used you as a hub? What if we could you go out and really scour the community and get a sense of what's needed? And he did all these things, and we came back with this notion that his village concept needed to serve as a broker of services to provide a conduit for kids seniors in high school to graduate on time and so we worked with the school district and then we asked penn state and we, we thought about okay is this not a moment to, to reconsider a two-gen approach so we looked at the theory of change of harvard and said, man, we got all these parents home and they may not have their jobs to go back to, as we consider maybe one third of businesses shuttering permanently as a result of COVID. Is this not a prime opportunity to really rethink what they might go into as a new career path? And so we pondered that. And then we said, OK, Keith said, well, I need to get some equipment for these kids. So we looked at getting uh, laptops and iPads. Then we looked at, well, what could CCAC do? With the high school kids, they said we could offer dual enrollment for these kids so we can get them some college classes. We asked Penn State, what could they do? They said, hey, we could offer an adult learning program online. Then we said to Penn State, now you have a number of students that are being furloughed, or you're not sure which one to do it about this particular time. This was three months ago. Um, could we use those students to be academic support? for the high school students and doing some online tutoring to make sure that these high school kids were keeping up with their academics so they did that and so we basically took the original idea and it transformed based upon the ecosystem of that community and it focused on getting these kids the academic support they needed and concurrently Addressing the family's needs to look at what are the new emerging skills that I need to ascertain so I could be capable of obtaining a sustainable livable wage job post-COVID or during the COVID era. And to me, that wouldn't have ever happened if we didn't have a relationship with that institution. So much of grant making is a power dynamic that we try to acknowledge and are sensitive to, but it's undergirding the whole relationship there is a certain amount of power that we yield when we write a check and so what we try to do is dispel that by saying more, it's more than money and we're not always right here's what we can offer and bring to the table um here's a thought what do you think about that and once again this requires us to expand our typical grant making period as far as contacts to a whole new level the reason i think we're capable of doing that is because we've been on the ground in a way that other institutions have not been on the ground, and so there's an inherent trust when we come to the table that if we ask the community something to consider, they don't feel like there's something hidden behind the question, or and we're trying to defund them, or are we trying to co-opt their work? It's really like, well, if you're thinking about this, we can add that to the table. If you want to do this, we know this contact, and we want this work. To last into perpetuity until it resolves the issue. I mean, that's to me is one of the most exciting things I've participated in because it's really what you call collective genius. It's really what you call having a lived experience history. It's really what you identify as being agile and iterative. And both us as an intermediary foundation and the community did that in unison. It wasn't one or the other, it was a shared. Stretching. I really enjoyed the part of the universities in particular, Penn State and the Community College of Allegheny County, because I, I pressured them to not make this about money. Like, what can you do right now? Because they have a limited amount of resources. They need to get equipment. They need to do this. They need to do that. If we spend it all up right now, what resources will be left for the pivot? People got to come out of COVID with a new way of operating, a new way of being. And we don't want to hamstring them by people being reactionary in the moment, which is important. We do have to do something in this moment. But we do, do we have to spend every resource in this moment given that we have an unknown uncertainty in front of us, right? We have this unknown framework, this unknown trajectory, this unknown paradigm shift. That requires us to. It's going to be resource late. It's going to be human late. It's going to be relationship late. It's all of these things that that require us to be different in a way that we've never considered being different. And I think that's the power of Nora Basins' work around Warm Data Lab. Is one of the things I fell in love with her work about is this notion that you have to train people to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things that we've been able to do is walk into a space and be comfortable with not knowing and not having the answers and and being a good listener and not dominating the the narrative and and then bringing resources to the table and allowing the people at the table to drive that and just say, hey, consider this, consider that. And you might want to look at this and maybe if I make a phone call, we don't have to spend that money because I did talk to the foundations they are looking at A contract to get some computers. Let's see if we can use that. So, let's because of the position that we sit in, we know of other activities taking place that can augment where you need to spend money because there's somebody thinking upstream about a bigger problem that could be resourced through their effort where you don't have to spend your limited resources on something that's being resourced upstream. Like that requires so much coordination. You just can't call somebody and say, No, you shouldn't buy those computers right now, like without a relationship.
0: Yeah, what we try to push as well that resources are not just a financial thing. It's not just a dollar bill. It's not just uh, money. It can be shown in so many different ways. And I think you've given just a great example there that resources don't come in just one form.
1: The most rewarding part is when people realize that you're there because you care. You're committed to seeing them grow and meet their objective. And, you know, if the doors work again, we start these people-in-people call them PMPs and I've been doing this work for over 30 years we were very strategic we invited leaders to these PMP sessions which are two hours in length and they're by community and so we work with about five communities around the city and we asked leaders to identify other leaders community stakeholders and such and we invited them into this two-hour process at the end, there's this notion of creating where extrapolating the learning in a way that gives us insight. What I've witnessed on these calls is the leaders becoming vulnerable in ways that I don't think they would have ever experienced or provided pre-COVID. We're witnessing people sharing ideas in ways that they seek solutions and not just to be heard and identified as being smart and credible. But really, this notion of like making it more than money, and then there's this cathartic experience that people say that they have from being a part of this work that really transforms them as leaders. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've, my draw has hit the floor when I hear a leader just saying something that you know, in particular, when you're a leader of color, it's almost taboo to say you're struggling publicly. I'm struggling because we're always worried. If I say that, I'm going to appear to be weak. People are going to say I'm not fit to leave. Man, I heard somebody say last week, bro, that, like, somebody asked about how are they dealing you know, we do these check-ins, how are you dealing with COVID, Black Lives Matter? And somebody I've been on for over 30 years and I have a very, very high regard for he's a mentor in many ways, he got on the call and he said, they asked him how he was doing. He said, I'm struggling, I'm empty, I feel Like there's nothing left in me. And I was floored. He didn't just say this on a call with fifty people. It just opened up a floodgate of emotions for me and for other people because in this moment the most powerful aspect of your leadership is your ability to be vulnerable and say, I don't have an answer. I don't know. I'm hurting. I'm empty inside. And invite other people to fill your vessel to to support you in ways that you historically don't ask for that kind of support. That's what makes us human. That's what differentiates us from animals. We are not acting in a humane way in America and in the world. We're not practicing agape love. We're not seeing the need for our work to not define us, but for our humanity to be defined through our work. That's where my energy is at right now. It's, It's like... I'm really trying to distance myself from my title and really embrace this thing of how am I leading in a humane way? How am I challenging myself and my team to think about how humane our practices are? One of the issues that's coming up that everybody's gonna have to deal with with is how do you balance at home working? I don't call it working at home because you're at home working. When your kids walk into the middle of a conference, they're they're in their house,
0: right? They're <laughs> yeah, not exactly. they're
1: not coming to your job. They did not walk into your conference room. They're in their house, seeing their mom or dad working, and they have a need. They don't understand you talking to the governor. They'll I mean you know they don't understand that they have, I'm hungry. Are you gonna feed me? I overslept. <laughs> I didn't, I missed the schedule. And these are like the levels of humanity we have to practice. And yet, there has to be a balance between that and, okay, we are talking to the governor's office, right? We do want to get to this meeting. And to be honest, everybody has been great. People's kids get on there. I always try to speak to the kids. Same thing with my kids. My kids are so used to just coming in waving and introducing themselves. Now they're just like, hi, my name is such and
0: such. And
1: I'm like, look, really? I I didn't invite you to all of that. But, you know, it's just, you know, it's like, We have to evolve, and yet we have to figure out how we get work done. You know, at this moment, everybody is suffering. Kids aren't having their social stimuli. Parents aren't having their social stimuli. There's over 40 million people unemployed. There's the stress of, I am employed. There's other people unemployed. What's my onus to the other parts of humanity? And, like, I even push myself and my team. Like, we have to work harder because your job's not in jeopardy. But these people's lives are in the balance. And, like, how do we create a more resilient, strategic, sustainable effort that really optimizes our effectiveness and efficiency in the sector? And so we've been really trying hard to, like, arrive at that. It's challenging because if you've been trained for 30 years to, to function in this way in a corporate mindset, and now you have to function in a corporate mindset at home with your family,
0: What's the balance? I'm going to jump to the do's and don'ts. And I'd love for you to give a do and don't for not just obviously your organization, but as we've been talking about for much of this conversation, people coming into this space for the first time, looking at philanthropic dollars to move social causes along within the US and even outside the US, it's happening in many countries obviously. What are some of the do's and don'ts that these people should have? Again, not just for your organization, but including your organization.
1: I think some of the dudes or people should learn how to convey their message and you know no more than three key points. And they should be clear about what they think those key three points will result in. I think that they need to not try to sell themselves or the institution, but to really focus on the problem and how their particular perspective of problem solving is unique to the sector and can yield a significant influence on resolution. I think people need to not put out false narratives and oversell their organization's capacity because we're very much aware that some people just don't have the infrastructure. And so when you ask for $200,000 and you really have struggled managing 50, it's hard for the foundations to see how to help. I think in retrospect, foundations have to provide more leeway for operating capital and unrestricted resources so that people's infrastructures could be built. And I think that's something we have to really look at. We also have to look at, are we pigeonholing people by meeting certain metrics we're comfortable with? And is there a different metric we should be looking at that is equally important and has been equally impactful in this sector? I think some of the adults are really, if you're not strategically aligned with someone to resolve something, don't put your name into the document. Don't say we're working with this institution. Because ultimately, there's a value of trust that's being parlayed at that moment that you can deliver. And if you're incapable of doing that, then that's the one thing in the foundation world, especially if you're an organization of color, once the trust is lost, it's pretty much game over for you. You're persona, not right. Um, and there's still a double standard. Like, there's other organizations that seem to lead. They can make a mistake and, you know, they can recover. But for black and brown institutions, it doesn't seem to be that way. I think that the other don't is don't lift somebody's idea without giving them credit or partnership. And be prepared to have them at the table to talk about what you're bringing to the table as a collaborative partner. And I, I, would, I would say the other don't is Don't have issues from the program officer or the foundation. Come to the institution as soon as you you possible with challenges that you might be having and be transparent. Say, hey, this is what I'm up against. I need your thought partnership on this. I don't have an answer for it. And I think this is another place where foundations have to grow as well because I remember when I was a grantee as a nonprofit leader and I would schedule quarterly meetings with my key program officers and foundation leaders. And they were like, why are you doing that? You don't even need to give us a midterm report, and a final report. I said, well, because you are, you entrusted me with this resource, I'm having a series of challenges that I need you to be aware of, number one, and number two, we're applicable. You're sitting on knowledge I don't have. And if I'm heading in the wrong direction and don't know it, I need you to apprise me of like you don't want to do that. You want to consider this. You don't have to give me details of what you know, but you could say, "Hey, that street ends. There's a dead end. So you're doing 100 miles an hour down that street, and there's going to be an accident, right?" Yeah. So there's there's things that you could say to alert me. I need to be looking in a different direction or do more research. But I think one of the greatest challenges that the nonprofits have is trusting the foundations to not punish them for not being on par with other institutions. That's where I think the trust is most critical. Uh, there's, a, there's a group I'm working with right now, and I'm helping them rethink how they even ask the question, how they obtain data. It took us months to get to this point, but now there's a whole team in this particular community who wants me to talk to them directly. They trust that I'm not going to punish them. I'm trying to give them money right now, but I can't give the money without some level of accountability. Let's work on what that accountability is. Like, it could be non-traditional, it could be these things, but I got you money based upon this being resolved and addressed. How do we do that? How do we calculate that? How do we come to an agreement that the, we have some level of success? And so they're really, you know, I would say one of the challenging things with this whole paradigm shift is time. The amount of time that the foundations and the grantees and leaders have to put into this model is front loaded. It's heavy on the front end. But once that relationship is established and there's a level of trust that people know you can deliver, then the requests look different. The support looks different. And that only happens over time. Now the critical nexus right now is we don't have a lot of time. And so how do you create a pivot for a sector that was has been not strongly supported in the past in a moment where they need a lot of support to really take the Black Lives Matter framework and movement to another level. There's policy change that has to happen. There's education that has to happen. There's a galvanizing community around critical issues that have to happen. There's education that has to happen. There's workforce development that has to happen. There's housing that has to happen. And How do you resource those things in a meaningful way to organizations that have been in your blind spot for years? And how do you vet those from the pretenders to the real institutions? And I I, I want to say that very lightly. I'm not saying that I want to be sensitive. I'm not saying that institutions are pretending. I'm saying there is a difference between being able to effectively execute your mission and you still needing support and optimizing the way you get to that. I would say that they need capacity building support, but in many instances, if you want to acknowledge you need help, then what are you doing if you can't fulfill your mission? And you can't articulate, this is what I've done. And so if I look at the end and I take away my impact on the end through the small end, what percentage of impact have I had on the sector? Right, if you can't speak culturally to that XY correlation in your work and the collective cumulative impact of other institutions' work on your particular work, then it's difficult for the foundation world to get behind that idea. Now, there's several schools of thoughts there. You know, one is we have to be able to see success in different ways. I agree to that. Also, I believe that because we live in a capitalist society, you have to be able to optimize capitalism and show ROI. And so for example, we're able to show our board that $3 million invested in the sector last year and one program area institutionally yielded $23 million ROI. And so when we first showed this to the board, they was like, time on pause. How did you come up with that? And so our team walked them through every dollar we used in the sector and the real cost for that work and the ROI that was created from our strategic alignment coordination Uh, volunteer services you have Uh, and so we are trying to show the sector that you can use resources and optimize them in a way and still be authentic to your mission they're not just opposed positions right they could be woven together to tell a very unique story and so we're very interested in how we arrive at that story and support that journey
0: I think we're going to move now from questions from me, that I've been peppering you with, to questions from others, including donors in this section. Um, we actually got some really insightful questions coming from this end and I'm, I'm keen to get your insight on them. First question is from the donor section. In addition to the global crisis of coronavirus, social injustice is literally exploding in front of our eyes. I've had to unexpectedly cut back funding due to the pandemic, and have had open and honest discussions with grantees and those who were grant relationships uh, were being finalized. These are people working in vulnerable communities and communities of color. In the wake of the recent events, I revisit how I conveyed that message and I am horrified. As a white woman who has generally taken a hit in terms of the financial resources I can give, but truly care about my grantees and their communities, what is a better way to express that and does not start from a place of my misfortune, but sounds more inclusive?
1: I think one of the greatest things that a foundation leader can say to a grantee is this is my ceiling. This is my opportunity. This is my challenge. What can we do in this moment? Because as a result of the coronavirus, we ended up giving out $10 million of resources that we expected to use in our general grant making activity as such. We have hit a wall with our grant-making opportunity, and we have to explore how we continue to support you and other people. And in doing so, we don't have an answer because there's more need than resource. One of the things that we've done, both as writing grants and pursuing grants to support other people, is one of the things that helps institutions like that, in my opinion, is for them to become pass throughs to help identify themselves as a resource in the community that has their pulse on critical issues and how the grantor can see them as a viable broker of needed resources to the sector and still provide them some level of support while everybody tries to figure out next steps. The second thing is, which I've, we've been talking about for 29 months at the Forbes Funds, is the proliferation of nonprofits they're all needed. Is there a way for us to work better together, differently together to collaborate in a more s- uh, systemic way to align in a way that we reduce duplication of effort? And so we've had that conversations and that's one of the parts of the grants making process we like is that we've supported several mergers and collaborations because people are seeing the, the writing on the wall, like there's not enough money to go around and if I believe that what I'm doing is important, but if me and my colleague down the road both have buildings and they're empty, do we both need a building? Do we both need to be paying rent? Or do we both, do one of us own the building? Can I sub lease? Can, can I think through how I can reduce some of my overhead? And so we provide consultants to support that work. But as a funder, because of this unique situation, I would say that, We all have to dig deep and figure out what is the greater good in this moment? How do we make a sacrifice where we see exponential growth as a result of that or yield? It requires us to really think about, if I make this grant to them, what's the benefit long-term, immediate and long-term? What kind of other learning can we get from that? Because there's also inevitably a loss. If you... Cut somebody out, and you—they provide insight into the sector in a way you would never have or even know about. the lot lost information is critical to the ecosystem. And so, as a funder, you have to kind of have, a, in a sense, an understanding that some of the people that are on your in your portfolio, they play a role in keeping you abreast about stuff you don't you don't have a real acute understanding of, but you appreciate and so what is it that they need minimally to stay in the game and how might you leverage other assets you have to help them be effective and efficient
0: question number two as we watch the proliferation of changes being ushered in after the killings of george floyd Briola taylor and ahmad arbery there is a sense that the movement has no longer waited for philanthropy to get its act together many changes are happening in what feels like a blink of an eye and mostly from self-organizing individuals and in groups not from traditional nonprofits, including some we have supported whose purpose was to bring about this type of change. So is it that philanthropy has missed a boat on supporting these kinds of efforts earlier, where we could have possibly even prevented some of these senseless deaths? Or is it something in how we support and work with ex- uh, existing structures around racial equality? Because although these organizations have accomplished great strides, we cannot mitigate the impact of the 2020, of 2020 compared to possibly the last 50 or 60 years. What have we done wrong, and what can we do better?
1: That's a great question, and I think I would steer away from what's been done wrong to what have we what could, what have we learned from this experience? One is, I think we have to understand and embrace that there's multiple ways of knowing, and that Black Lives Matter movement is different than the other movements. They they are not peaceful in the sense that they're going to go away quietly and just go off into the sunset. And we need that. I think we need the system to be pushed. I also think that there's a need for us to take more risk in philanthropy and to move away from a single point of contact understanding a social phenomenon to more of a whole person or human-centered design approach. And if we took that approach, how would that make our grant making look different? How would that make our listening look different? How would that make our decision-making look different? If we believe that it takes a community to resolve an issue, a cross-sector group of experts, does our grant-making reflect that, right? And so that's some exploration that every foundation has to take a look at. I would say certainly we've all, at some level, been negligent with getting behind issues that address Racial institutional practices, some of us work in institutions that exhibit that on a day to day basis and we're survivors of that institution, and so I think the greater question is. How can philanthropy do a different job of creating an infrastructure that mirrors the very cities and communities they work in so that their decision making is more informed by lived experience and not a research document. How do we ensure that these institutions that we value and think are important have a direct bearing statistically on the populations we serve? And so I think those are very tangible things that could be done that really move the institutions to a space where they can have a real deeper understanding of the issues and then make different decisions with regard to grant making based upon a continuity of care model, understanding if we do this, it's gonna have this impact over here. If we do that, it's gonna have this impact over here. And I think if we function like that, then the nonprofit sector will have a different value for strategic collaboration. As long as the big dogs get the money, they don't have to worry about collaborating. And if we believe that, those, this is my belief, no single institution can solve today's social phenomenon by itself. It's too complicated. When I was a kid, I was a last key kid. The biggest thing I needed was to have an after-school snack and to do my homework and not burn my house down um, trying to cook something when my mother wasn't home. So the wives and Boys and Girls Club, they became very relevant. But what we did in that moment is that we also take out another equation by not supporting other family responses that could have been more organic right could we have looked at a local GRIOT in the community a grandmother a a retired teacher and resource them to keep the continuity of the family and community together to resource the ability for that parent to not worry about coming home and picking their kid up from the boys and girls club or the Y because in that community was another set of stakeholders that provided a different continuity of care that was culturally relevant and specific to that group. And that's not to knock the Girls and Boys Club and the YMCA's and the YWCA's in the world. It's just to say, when we resource these things, then we look at the adverse effect of that and calculate, was that a way that we created a codependent relationship? When we could have created an independent one like when we could have optimized that family cycle in a way to really push kids out of the nest to really take more risk because the community was surrounding them with support like there's just when you think about these things you know you, you make a decision in the moment that you think is the best thing in the moment cool. but that's why we've been considering how do you create a human-centered design response and a whole person response versus just a problem response.
0: That's great, Fred. I'd like to now share questions from the nonprofit side. First question. We had a donor reach out to us who we had engaged over the past few years about supporting our work on systemic justice reform and asked what he could do to help push our mission forward. We were the ones pushing the conversations forward, and each time we heard, this isn't the right time. There's a frustration that after we had come to this donor to help us fireproof the system, He's now coming, rushing in with a fire extinguisher when the entire country is in flames. He's not the only one. And while we're happy to engage with this new interest, how do we make donors understand that only offering support after a preventable tragedy is just another tragedy in itself without actually affecting our ability to fundraise?
1: I think that's a great question. And I think it begs to hearken on this idea that are we proactive or reactive as a body, as an institution, as a system? It also requires the funder who now realizes that this important work is critical in the linchpin to create some of the most systemic changes in the world. How could we stretch our thinking to think outside the box? And so I think think there's two things. One is I push my funders and my, my institutions and my program officers to think outside the box, but it is not without great pushing. And that only happens because I have established a relationship with them in delivery. I think when you're an activist and you're doing stuff that's outside the scope of the the philanthropy, they're uncomfortable. There's a level of doubt that they have. And also, one of the challenges that the grantees have to grapple with is that many years you might think that that person sitting in the seat is making a uniform decision that's unilateral. But there's a board that drives a lot of the decisions that the foundations have to respect and honor There's wiggle room but there's there's often not a lot of wiggle room and so if you really want to get a foundation to give differently you have to impact the boards those boards have to be reflective and encompass a wider diverse group of stakeholders that have a myriad of perspectives of problem solving and experiences with resolving issues and challenges if you don't do that then you have to continuously push on the back end to make the case for different and other i would say that in the case where the institution has come to fruition about the need to support this work instead of focusing on why it didn't happen before i will focus more on how it needs to happen moving forward differently what is needed in this moment not to have a flashpoint but to develop a longitudinal relationship and to go back and explore past things that could have been beneficial to help give context to the grantor like why you were doing x why you thought this was important and what your projections and hypotheses were and i think you know when you do that one of the things i'll close with this on this particular question is when you're asking somebody else for their money or their resource you have to do your due diligence, and they have a right to say no. You have a right to ask again. They have a right to say no. You have a right to give them more information. They have a right to ponder that and say no. And so in each of these engagements, the fact that they're taking you up again to listen is an opportunity, and you might want to consider what is their comfort zone. How do you make them comfortable with you being in that space And then once you create a level of comfort, how do you make them see the value or foster the ability to see what you see as valuable, given their lack of comfort with that framework? And that, once again, requires relationships. And you have to have an authentic relationship, not one that's driven by getting dollars and cents. I mean, I can tell you that there's been voluminous meetings I've had with foundations that never received a cent. And I used to be, too. like, why they got me coming to this stuff? Why this and that? And, And what I learned is, man, if I just come in that room and listen and learn what they're doing, it would inform me. If I come in trying to tell my story without listening and learning, I've missed the opportunity. And so there has to be a balance between the story you need to tell and the story that's being told. And how do you merge them together to create the new opportunity for the future? And you have to be skilled enough to be in that space to understand what it is
0: that's occurring and what you need to bring to the table to shift that paradigm. The last question from the nonprofit section. Who is educating philanthropic foundations on their philanthropy in regards to black and brown lives? How do we involve the community more in their decision making? especially if they do not have people of color on their staff?
1: You have to start within the institution's infrastructure and look at its board makeup. You know, my board makeup does not look the same as it did 29 months ago. My staff does not look the same as it did 29 months ago. I would ask anybody to go look at my staff from 2017 to 2020 and come back and tell me what's different, both my board and my staff. There has to be intentionality within the institutional leadership to create a diverse and robust set of stakeholders to help you tackle social phenomena. There has to be pressure on the system as a value and not a program or project. And so there has to be pressure put on the system to see the value in that, but also what are the solutions? You know, in many instances, some of these institutions say they can't find qualified people. Well, you know, you have to create a cadre a cadre of people who can fill those questions, who can fill those, the answers to those questions, so that when it occurs, there's five people you can pick from here. There's ten over here. Um, there has to be a level of doing your homework that creates the systems change or ecosystems development. And I'll say systems change versus ecosystems development, because I believe that in many ways we're trying to do systems change, which is a linear framework to me, versus development of ecosystems. Ecosystems are living, breathing things that constitute and perpetuate life in the most healthy way possible, given the external locus of control inside that ecosystem and its ability to evolve and iterate. Systems function in a way that they simply s- seek to optimize the export of a particular product, given its focus and trajectory. And they, temp- they attempt to do that with the least amount of energy, and the-, the greatest ROI for investment. And so in that analysis, there is inherently a lack of being human-centered. It's about producing a product that yields an ROI, a rate of return on investment, that makes people happy. And what we're talking about is optimizing the role of a human being in transforming our environment and not just the program. And so I think the question is, once again, one that how do you change and create change in those systems is, one, it starts with the change within yourself, how you can think about problem solving. Two, it starts with building up coffers of trained practitioners that are capable of doing high-level work and have a high degree of professional acumen or experience, that's unquestionable. Like, these people are content experts. Three is going into the space, hearing the challenge, and finding ways to create dynamic tension that needs resolution and you being a piece of the problem-solving framework. Like, what does that look like? What do you bring to the table? And four, there's always the art of negotiation. Like, there's, you're never going to get a very... Minimal ways that you ever get everything you ask for. I mean, it just doesn't work that way, well, unfortunately, because there's so much money and so many needs. And so you have to begin to calculate in your mind what else, what else can you get from the sector that is not money. It's more than money. And what else can you bring to the sector that's more than asking for a grant? And so once you begin to explore that. I think your value to the sector looks different. The value to the foundation looks different. The value you have to the community looks different. And you create a platform that it's just hard to challenge. Like your expertise comes through without a doubt. And people, there's a value to that. There is definitely a value to that.
0: Okay, so I'm going to get you out here on a question about the future. My question to you is what is something five years from now that you wish to be able to look back on with pride that your philanthropy has accomplished?
1: Five years from now, I would like to be able to look back and say that we helped galvanize the system at four levels, at the micro level, meso level, macro level, and global level. That if we created a vertical integration process that sped up the impact of policy change, that looked at resource distribution, targeted grant making, that harmonized the way that we created a humane space for all humans to thrive. And that through that evolution in five years, we have began to have a dramatic descent with regards to our climate change challenges. We began to create a harmonious relationship with our Latinx brothers and sisters and that we begin to formulate grassroots and community-driven processes that are vibrant, inclusive, led by people of color, and support issues that move us away from our current state of existence. That as a result of our work, humanity is, is better, we are better, and our children's future looks better.
0: Thank you, Fred Brown of the Forbes Fund, for an amazing conversation today. Uh, it's been everything I expected and more. I really appreciate your time.
1: And thank you for thinking about me. But I look forward to whatever I can do to help. And I think this is a great platform. I appreciate you and the work you're doing. I applaud you. And uh, anything I can do to help, just don't hesitate to reach out.
0: I appreciate that. And thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great day.